Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 53 for the second half of October 2012. The topic I'm going to talk about today is how Earth's moon formed. The basic claim that people make is Earth's moon exists, so therefore it must have gotten here somehow. In order to explain how it got here, how it formed, we need to develop a model. That model has to be physically possible, and it also has to explain properties that we observe today of the moon and other objects that it might interact with, such as Earth. It also needs to be able to make predictions about things that we don't yet observe, but could in the future. If the model predicts anything that isn't true, then the model needs to be modified or rejected for a new one. If observations are made that the model can't explain, then again, the model has to be modified or rejected if it can't be modified to incorporate those other observations. Now, hopefully it goes without explanation that we've been observing the moon for a very, very long time. Rather than go through a list of what we see that's based on tens of thousands of research papers that have been published in the area, as opposed to what Mike Barris said in his recent book, Ancient Aliens on the Moon, that we know next to nothing about the moon, I'm going to go through the major hypotheses that are out there. And, in each, I'm going to explain the major observations that support it, and the major observations that don't support that particular model. So one of the first hypotheses for the moon's formation was that it formed with Earth, the same way that the other planets did, in a process called co-accretion. This means that it coalesced out of the solar nebula near Earth, with Earth, and everything was pretty hunky-dory. If you want to go with the standard astronomical terms of using big something to describe this model, the one that's commonly used is the Big Sister, where Earth is the Big Sister to the Moon. Now, pretty much the only good thing that this model has going for it is that it can easily explain the moon's size. Earth's moon is very, very large relative to Earth, being about one-quarter the diameter and about one percent the mass. The co-formation idea was something that we already were pretty sure could happen, and it can explain the size. But there are a lot of things that it doesn't explain, and a lot of things that contradict that formation mechanism. A prediction, if Earth and the Moon formed in nearly the same location, is that they should have about the same composition. They don't. Earth is very rich in iron relative to the Moon, and there are a large number of elements, what we call creep, K-R-E-E-P, that are rare on Earth, but relatively abundant on the Moon. Creep stands for potassium, where the K is the symbol for potassium. REE stands for rare earth elements, such as things like scandium, lanthium, neodymium, samarium, europium, thulium, things that you probably haven't really heard of before. And then potassium is the P. If the two formed in the same place, they should have the same composition, which they don't. Another bonk against this hypothesis is that the angular momentum of the Earth-Moon system is anomalously high. Angular momentum is effectively the spin energy that's stored, and we have a lot of it relative to other objects. If we form together like any other planet, just two instead of one, 
then there's no reason why we should have such a large angular momentum. Perhaps directly because of the high angular momentum issue, the next formation model proposed was capture. This means that Earth formed alone, the Moon formed alone, but early in the solar system's history, the Moon came close to Earth and gravitational interactions resulted in its capture. This was good. First, it was good because it's not impossible. Second, it could sort of explain the composition differences. If we formed in different places in the solar system, then there wasn't any particular reason that we should have the same elemental abundances. Third, it could explain the high angular momentum, because this thing came whizzing by and somehow was captured. The bad is that it's very improbable. In pretty much every simulation that the Earth and Moon survive, you have to have a third body to remove a lot of the energy from the Moon gravitationally in order to get it into a stable orbit. This is called a three-body problem or three-body interaction. Getting three bodies to happen to be in the same place, going in the right directions, at the right speeds to result in one being captured about the other, is very unlikely to happen. An alternative is to have Earth possess a very, very, very big and thick extended atmosphere to literally aerobreak the passing would-be future moon, but that would also be very difficult to do based upon what we know about the past environment on Earth. Now, another problem is that it doesn't actually explain why the moon lacks iron. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, some asteroids, and even some outer solar system moons have reasonably large iron cores. Mercury's, in fact, is about 80% of the size of the planet itself, but that's a future podcast episode. But the moon, if it has an iron core, it's very, very small relative to the overall size. The capture hypothesis can't really explain that. Now, as for a big something descriptor, I prefer the term big net for the capture hypothesis. The third hypothesis proposed is what I call big spin. This is the idea that was developed well before plate tectonics, and that is that the Earth spun off the Moon. The idea is that Earth was spinning so gosh darn fast, the Moon just sort of fizzed off, where I use the technical definition of fizz being where it separates sort of by mitosis. This is as opposed to bubbling fizzy drinks. Anyway, the only really good thing about this model is that it can easily explain the lack of iron in the moon because the moon formed from Earth's crust and mantle. It didn't form from the core, so it wouldn't contain a lot of iron. And we do have, or did have according to thoughts back then, a really big basin from which it could have come off, the Pacific Ocean. Problem with that is, as I implied, there was this little pesky thing about plate tectonics that was developed about 50 years later, and that explains why we have the Pacific Ocean. We also were able to date the floor age of the Pacific Ocean Basin and find that it was on the order of a few hundred million years, as opposed to a few billion years, the age of the moon. Now, I already started to explain some of the bad things about this model, like plate tectonics, and it would have to spin really, really, really fast. But to list even more, one prediction from this is that the moon should orbit Earth's equator, because that's where it would have blobbed off. But the moon has a 5.2 degree inclination relative to Earth's equator, not 58.7 degrees, thank you, Mike Vera. 
Another basic physics problem is how the moon fizzed off, or how it fissioned off Earth. This is a problem that intro astronomy students often do, and I had to do back in college, and it works out such that if you ignore the actual strength of the rock, then you have to get Earth spinning faster than once every 85 minutes around its axis, so a day would be 85 minutes long in order for this to happen. And it would actually have to be much, much faster than that because rock has material strength. Getting Earth to spin that fast from any formation mechanism that we know isn't really possible. And it still doesn't explain the angular momentum anomaly of the Earth-Moon system. The fourth major hypothesis is what most people have probably heard of today because it's the one that's generally accepted. We term it the Big Splash. The basic model is that a Mars-sized planet hit Earth. This planet is given the name Thea, or perhaps Theia. I'm not, I never really studied Greek or Latin. Anyway, this big planet-sized object hit Earth. Most of the core from that planet sunk into Earth, debris from Earth's crust and mantle, and most of the impactor were launched into orbit, and then they coalesced into the moon that we know and love today. Unless you're David Nepan and think that it causes earthquakes, but I'll get into that later during feedback. Now, there are a lot of good things about this model that explain a lot of properties that we observe. One is that it explains the moon's lack of iron, because the majority of its core was deposited into Earth. This has the benefit of also explaining Earth's relatively large iron core compared to, say, Venus or Mars. It also explains the composition differences with creep materials, but at the same time, it can also explain why the oxygen isotopes are the same. Now, I haven't yet talked about oxygen isotopes. They're a way of determining if two objects formed in the same material or from the same material in the solar system. Oxygen is defined as having eight protons, but it can have a few different numbers of neutrons, and these would be its isotopes. Eight neutrons, and you have oxygen 16, because 8 plus 8 is 16, and I don't even need a calculator for that. Nine neutrons, and you get 17. Ten neutrons, and you get oxygen 18, and so on and so forth. When you take the ratio of these isotopes, usually, say, oxygen 18 to 16 and oxygen 17 to 16, and you plot rocks from different bodies in the solar system, they form very different groups, based on where they came from. So, if Earth and the Moon formed in different locations and they never mixed, then they should have different oxygen isotopes, like Earth versus Mars, or Earth versus Ceres, or Earth versus Vesta. But they have the same. So, the Big Splash can explain this by some material being mixed together, and pretty much resetting the oxygen isotopes as the combined ratio from Earth and Thea, or Theia. Now, the oxygen isotopes would have mixed because oxygen is easily vaporized, but things like rare earth elements, those really heavy things like neodymium and cesium and other kinds of materials, wouldn't necessarily have mixed quite as easily. Now, this also can explain pretty easily the high angular momentum. I mean, basically, a friggin' planet hit the Earth that's going to impart a lot of energy onto the Earth and future Moon system. It can also explain why the Moon doesn't quite orbit around the equator. 
It also explains why Earth is tilted on its axis, and why the moon is tidally locked. Basically, the moon formed as a tidally locked object, and as for the other things, as I said, a friggin' planet hit Earth. In that case, you're going to have a pole switch, or a pole flip, or whatever the 2012 doomsday people are saying. I mean, you're striking a planet with another planet. It's a bad touch. As an added benefit, we do know that impacts with very, very large objects hitting other very, very large objects were frequent in the early solar system. That isn't to say that these happened every day. It was kind of a rare event, which is a little bit of a con for this model. What this hasn't yet been able to explain is that there are still some issues with different elements. In fact, this was a listener-requested episode after the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe episode 350 back in March, where I think Bob way jumped the gun and said that this model needed to be thrown out because of some new research about titanium isotopes on the moon and Earth. In preparation for this episode, I re-listened to Bob's 10-minute segment. It starts about 10 minutes in, and I think that he misinterpreted what the authors were arguing. And I'll link to the papers on the show notes for this episode. Now, Bob Novella got the basic part right. The authors were reporting on comparing isotopes of titanium from earth rocks and lunar rocks. They found that the ratios were very, very close to each other, and the implication was that they were very likely needed to have formed from the same material. Problem is that these don't mix well like oxygen would. They're very solid. They don't melt or vaporize very easily. And so the question is, how do you get them to be the same if the original pre-lunar body and Earth formed in different locations. Now, the authors suggested three different methods in their abstract. Two of them are, I think, pretty easily compatible with the Big Splash model. Basically, both of those methods are that material from Earth blanketed the forming moon, and so that's what we're sampling, as opposed to material from the original pre-moon impact object, Theia. Now, I think it remains to be seen how the numerical models play out with regards to this to see if it actually works, but the current consensus is that the Big Splash is likely, at least as a basic concept, it's likely to be how the moon formed. It will very likely be modified in the future, but the basic idea is intact. Now, there are, of course, some other models that are out there. One of them was done by press release rather than science publication a year or two ago, And it's what I term the Big Burp, where the authors proposed that a freak natural nuclear explosion happened, ejecting a large chunk of Earth, and that chunk formed the moon. Now, this isn't as impossible as it may sound. We do know of natural nuclear reactions inside Earth that have happened before. One of them, in fact, was in Gabon or Gabon, Africa. But I don't really know of anyone other than these studies' authors at the moment who agree with this model. Another model is that a giant ice ball crashed into Earth and ejected material that formed the moon. So for sort of a, a modified big splash idea. Maybe a big crunch idea, except we can't use big crunch because big crunch is a model for explaining the end of the universe. Another idea has to do with a more glancing blow that knocked off more of Earth and less of the actual original glancing blow impactor. But to my knowledge, and I'm reasonably up-to-date on this particular field, the Big Splash is the state of the art that best explains what's observed, although it is still actively being worked on. 
Now, this episode didn't really have much pseudoscience in it, but believe me, there are people out there today who will flagrantly misrepresent what the current state of the science is for lunar formation. In fact, someone who I've been talking about for the last few months now, Mike Barra, includes in the first chapter of his latest book several misrepresentations of lunar formation theory. His preferred model, as stated at the beginning of the book, is that God with a big G did it, although he looks into evidence throughout the rest of the book that it may have been gods with a little g that did it, aka ancient aliens. But this is not something that's often taught, and when minor mistakes are made on very, very popular productions and podcasts, it's not an unreasonable endeavor to correct them. And so, that's the state of the science. The big splash idea is the one that best explains all of the observations today. It works numerically, it works in models, it works in theory. It's likely to be tweaked further to match new data, such as this titanium isotope stuff, but I haven't seen anything to suggest that the model needs to be thrown out entirely. In fact, I actually know several people who work actively on this model and were involved in its conception. If anyone is interested, send me an email, and if there's enough interest, I might try to get some of them on for an interview. There's a bit of new news this episode, although it's not entirely related to any previous episode, but I hope you'll indulge me for about a minute. As I hope most of you know, Sally Ride, the first female American astronaut in space, well, if you're an astronaut then you went into space, died earlier this year of pancreatic cancer. She was 61 years old. After she died, it came out that she didn't come out, that she was a lesbian. This past week, I read that the American Family Research Institute, a very, very conservative and Christian Bible-based institution, very strongly implied that Sally Ride died because she was a lesbian, and that if she stayed married to a man, she might have lived longer because, quote, her death fits a consistent pattern, suggesting that homosexuality is associated with an early demise, end quote. Now, I was originally going to say that I was offended as an astronomer or a space enthusiast or whatever, but I think instead I'm offended as a human being, that they would use the death of an American heroine from cancer to spread their hatred of homosexuality, and I'll leave it at that. Moving on, I'm sorry I am skipping Q&A again this episode, because I am rushing to get it out and recorded before a trip. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, although it's easiest probably just to send me an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. Now, in terms of feedback, we're going to go back again to episode 50 on lunatic or lunatic earthquakes and whether or not tides actually cause earthquakes, or not necessarily cause, but trigger or enhance the likelihood that an earthquake will happen. The reason we're revisiting this is because of, again, David Nepan. Now, when I came out with the episode 50, I posted a link to it on the Coast Gab forum that I'll link to in the show notes. This is a place where people who are a fan of what Coast to Coast used to be, but are not fans of what it is now, go to complain about George Norrie and other hosts today. People who are generally critical thinkers, in other words, Anyway, last week from when I'm recording this, 
David found the forum post and went into a long diatribe on the forum about how I was wrong. The people on the forum welcomed him, but they challenged him to back up his data. I went in and reanalyzed by hand his claims for California earthquakes, and I showed that, again, everything was at chance levels. I repeatedly asked him to show us his data, because that's where the issue appears to lie. That's the scientific process. If one person makes a claim, and the next person takes an independent look at the data and finds something different, then the next step is to reconcile the two, and figure out why there's a disagreement. Not for one to tell the other to go buy his book, because that's all he needs to do. Now, when I pointed these things out, and I detailed exactly what the data show and provided it all, David refused to respond to that. He did claim, though, that I was misrepresenting his work, that he never claimed that the perigee moon affects tides, which is intriguing in itself. Now, let's say that he didn't claim that, which he did, but let's say he didn't. Remember, perigee is the time in an object's orbit when it's closest to Earth. You can remember it with peri, starting with a P, and proximity, also starting with a P. The suffix G, that's G-E-E, refers to Earth. Anyway, when the moon is closest to Earth, tides are around 40% stronger than when it's at apogee, when it's farthest away, apo, away, apogee. So if David didn't claim that perigee had anything to do with increasing the likelihood of earthquakes due to tides, then his model is internally inconsistent. But then I quoted directly from one of David's interviews where he said that perigees do affect lunar tides and therefore affect earthquakes. David didn't respond when I pointed that out. Instead, he maintains that even if he's wrong, people should contact the California governor's office to tell them to look into it or to tell them that he's wrong. I'd say that's kind of indicative of an egomaniac when you want both positive and negative attention, but I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Anyway, I maintain that there is nothing to this, and that the data show that there is nothing to this. Then, if there isn't anything to it, you shouldn't take up valuable time on your part, nor the part on the people who you call about this. He didn't respond to that part either. And so that's where this stands for now. I've posted a link to this in the show notes for this episode, as well as the show notes for episode 50. And if you have 15 minutes or so to kill, I recommend reading The Exchange. I think that it's highly illustrative of pseudoscientists when confronted by people who actually know what they're talking about. Oh, and actually another thing that David brought up that bears mentioning is that he claimed to get very, very upset that I would dare to talk about him without alerting him that I was going to talk about him and offer him an opportunity to defend himself or to rebut my statements. My response to that part was that he needed to learn to restrain his emotional energies and spend them on something more important, and that it was kind of ridiculous for him to think that whenever anyone wrote about someone else that they should contact that person and offer them a chance to make a statement. That's just stupid. Now this episode, as I am trying to get it out sooner and faster because of an upcoming trip, there is no puzzler for it. I apologize for that. And there are also no announcements for this episode. And so that means...
That wraps up this topic for the 53rd edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcasts.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use, one, the feedback form on the website, two, send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, three, leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, four, leave a comment on my blog for this episode, five, leave a comment on the, sorry, leave a comment, comment on the Facebook page for this podcast. See, I don't edit the end of stuff. Or six, send me a tweet at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, although it might take time for me to reply. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes. If you liked it, tell your friends and family. <laughs>